0: I'm trying to do the right thing, and if I thought I could get straight answers for him and his team by sending this off for analysis, I would. But I always kind of felt that she was she was involved. She was there.
1: How are you feeling? This is really this is. I mean, this is two years of work. So much painstaking, tiny step after tiny step to get to this point, but it's pretty amazing really,
2: that we're here. Like, we didn't know that this day would ever come. So here we are. Our petitions for new testing on DNA evidence in the Haysom murders had taken a year to create, and we hoped they would be the key to unlocking answers about who left blood at the crime scene. We filed them in Bedford County Circuit Court in August of 2021. We'd heard from Yen's team for years that Bedford County was stonewalling and would block any effort to conduct DNA testing on evidence in the Hayesum murders. We'd already jumped the first hurdle for testing, getting Bedford Prosecutor Wes Nance to sign the petitions. And here was another obstacle. The judge who would review our petitions would be the same man who won Yen's conviction, former Bedford County Prosecutor Jim Updike, who now sits on the bench in Bedford. Would Updike block our petitions for DNA testing? The answer came quickly.
1: So Judge Updike got back to us, and he is recusing himself from the case. Wow, that's fast that he already did that.
2: So fast. Within 24 hours of our filing, Updike removed himself, citing his previous involvement in the case. The petitions would be assigned to a different judge from a neighboring county. The move is exactly what our attorney Bruce predicted Updike would do, since that's what judicial ethics call for. It didn't seem to us like Wes Nance or Judge Updike were stonewalling, but it did mean more waiting for a new judge to receive our petitions and rule on them. We had plenty to keep us occupied with another legal filing, a Freedom of Information Act request to the Bedford County Sheriff's Office. A new Virginia law went into effect in July, 2021, requiring law enforcement officials to give the public greater access to investigative files in closed cases. We wanted to see the files on the Haysom murders, so we emailed our request. A few weeks later, Courtney and Rachel were on their way back to Bedford County with permission to review files in the case that had never been seen by the public. So what do you think we're going to find
1: in the files? What are you most interested in? What, like the investigators were actually thinking in the days after the murders? Because everything we have heard from like Chuck Reed and from what we've gathered from Ricky Gardner, and Carl Wells is like, it's all stuff that they've thought about like over the past thirty years. Do you know what I mean? Like, I want to know what they actually thought in those first days.
2: Yeah, I want to see if what tips were called in. All of Bedford County's old evidence files are stored in a sprawling warehouse with locked metal cages for additional security. A friendly deputy led Rachel and Courtney to an area in a back corner of the building where hasten case files have sat for much of the past 35 years. By the time they pulled up at 11 a.m., the temperature outside was 90 degrees, and with only a few box fans to move the air inside, it was stifling. With the deputy supervising, they sat down on the cement floor and started sifting through thousands of pages of handwritten investigator's notes, transcripts of interviews with early suspects, and letters from Haysom family members. It was stuffed into 18 overflowing boxes and in no particular order. Six hours later, they had a pile of about 1,500 pages to copy and take home. The sheriff's office had to review every page requested. A little over a month later... We got the copies. Do you think we should, like, go through oh. all the stacks to see generally What
1: did it, yes, let's organize. And take the most interesting things yeah. to actually read? Because if we just read every page, we're going to be here until Saturday. <laughs> Next Saturday.
2: As we started reading, we were transported back to the first week of April 1985. As investigators and the Haysom family struggled to make sense of the shocking murders that had been discovered on a Wednesday afternoon, and it had been described to us in earlier interviews by the first law enforcement officers on the scene.
1: I heard a lot
3: of radio traffic on my radio in the charger. I picked it up, and and my captain called me and said, you just need to be here, and he told me where they were at.
2: Buzz McThaden was a rookie deputy in Bedford and was called to the Haysom home on Holcomb Rock Road. His boss, Sheriff Carl Wells, took one look at the bloody crime scene and knew he would need some help.
4: I called at Lynchburg and got the Regional Homicide Squad activated and headed that way.
2: Investigators from around the state arrived in Bedford to help out with the investigation. They started interviewing the Haysom's neighbors and friends.
4: At that point, we had not a clue in this world who it would be.
2: The transcripts of those interviews were in our piles of documents we'd always wondered how investigators ultimately came to suspect Jens and Elizabeth in the case. Former Bedford Deputy Chuck Reed, who changed his mind about the case and now supports Jens, told us he'd suspected Elizabeth from the very beginning.
3: I I always kind of felt that she she was involved. She was there.
2: But as we sat reading handwritten notes and interviewed transcriptions from the first week of the investigation 35 years earlier, it was clear Elizabeth wasn't the first person the task force looked into it was another troubled young woman, a high school student who had briefly lived with the Haysoms. She was anti-Christ, cutting herself and smearing blood on
1: her and her clothes and wearing them. Around. Whoa, whoa,
2: whoa. The young woman and her mom were longtime family friends and had been living with Nancy Haysom in the fall of 1984 while Derek was traveling. They'd moved out when Derek got home in December. The teen raised suspicions when she left town the day the haysome bodies were discovered. But after months of interviews with family members, friends, and a school guidance counselor, investigators eventually ruled her out. Former Deputy Chuck Reed had told us about another early suspect.
3: Uh, the groundskeeper, we found out he had pulled time for a murder back years ago.
2: That man's name appears early in the investigator notes, after family members mentioned Derek Hasem had been unhappy that he had cleared a line of trees on the property. But the groundskeeper told investigators there was no real conflict. He said Derek was actually angry with Nancy about the decision to clear the trees. The groundskeeper passed a lie detector test and gave fingerprints and a blood sample and was quickly ruled out as a suspect. As they interviewed witnesses, investigators also made notes about crime scene evidence. Among the clues at the crime scene were bloody footprints, including a shoe print. The notes show that detectives went to two different shoe stores and spoke with store managers about what kind of shoe could have left the print and what size it represented. They were told it had likely been left by a woman wearing a tennis shoe. Nancy Hazem wasn't wearing tennis shoes. So with indications that another woman had been present at the scene, investigators conducted interviews with the Haysom children who had returned to Lynchburg after their parents' deaths. The documents show a new suspect emerged, along with a possible motive.
1: Fontaine also said Julian had told her he might get dropped from the will if he and Fontaine got married.
2: Fontaine was the former girlfriend of one of the Haysom's sons, Julian, he had ended the relationship months earlier and then quickly gotten engaged to someone else. Fontaine had recently found out about the engagement, and investigators considered that as a potential motive for the murders.
3: Well, she dated the youngest son, Julian, and he broke up with her. And she wasn't happy about it. People say she blamed Mr. Andres for it.
2: Another Hasem's son, a doctor living in Texas named Howard mentioned the breakup in his first interview with investigators. And an older, handsome daughter, Fiona, told investigators she had a premonition about her stepmother's death and the person responsible. After some hesitation, she named Fontaine. She speculated her parents were attacked by someone they knew. I suspect they were taken totally unaware, just simply because they were far apart. They weren't together. They were taken by surprise, Fiona told investigators, adding. Now, if there were two people in the house, I don't know. From the investigators' notes, it's clear. Fontaine was the main suspect for the first few months after the murders, and deputies took Fiona Hasem's premonition seriously. They even contacted a psychic in New York who worked at the NYPD. But Chuck Reed told us in the end, it was traditional police work that ruled Fontaine out.
3: Her good impressions, didn't you? didn't match anything that was found, her blood and all this kind of stuff. So she was eventually eliminated.
2: As investigators hit dead end after dead end, Sheriff Wells told us the community was on edge about who committed such vicious murders.
4: The neighborhood did not know the people that were, the actual neighbors. And they panicked when they found out what had happened. And immediately they think, somebody... Oh, some group of people coming in and did this. And they were panicking as to what had happened there. Well, the news media went ballistic.
2: We read investigators' notes showing a flood of tips pouring in about strange cars in the neighborhood and unexplained injuries.
1: So there was a woman who got treated for a cut on her finger at a physician's um, office. Yeah, around. So this is on 4-7. Okay. So um, and workers. she had a band-aid. So they contacted her on the 7th um, because they, I think they had checked with the doctors' offices and probably the emergency rooms to see if anyone had come in with knife
2: wounds. The focus on the knife wounds and hand injuries made sense to us. One of Yen's own forensic experts had explained to us that whoever killed the Haysums in such a stabbing frenzy likely cut their own hands in the process.
3: Almost every case I've worked on where somebody's been stabbing somebody else, these people aren't using appropriate knives for killing people. They use crappy knives. So they use kitchen knives without hilts, which means as soon as you strike bone, there's the likelihood that your hand's going to slide over the blade. The, The likelihood is somebody cut themselves.
2: One of the big questions in the case is whether Jens cut himself during the murders and left his typo blood at the crime scene. At his trial, a witness testified that he'd seen Jens with a couple of Band-Aids on his fingers at the Haysom's funeral. In his London confession, Jens told investigators the scars on his fingers resulted from his attack at the Haysom's. And Carl Wells told us he saw an obvious injury to Jens' hand in the days after the murders.
4: So you know, then you got to start figuring, okay, wait a minute now, what has happened? Well, at the funeral, I noticed a Band-Aid somewhere. A Band-Aid?
1: Mm-hmm.
4: On Yen Zorin. Mm-hmm. On his hand. So that started us asking questions. Pretty good sized Band-Aid wrapped around his finger. Definitely a cut. So, uh, that brought suspicion.
2: Jens and his team have long disputed the claims that anyone actually saw him with an injured finger. Law enforcement officers who support him say none of the witnesses they interviewed as they reviewed the case recalled seeing it. And Jens told us he was lying about the scars on his hand during his confession. As we reviewed the investigative files, we couldn't find any documents supporting Sheriff Wells' claims. That he or anyone else had seen fresh cuts on Yen's hand. In fact, the only time we see Yen's name in the early investigators' notes is when Elizabeth mentions him as her boyfriend and her alibi. Investigators first interviewed Elizabeth on April 8, 1985, five days after her parents' bodies were discovered. She met with them at a task force command center set up at an elementary school near the Haslems home.
3: I'll never forget when she walked in. I was walking down the hall and I met her when she came in. But the girl never, all the time I saw her, never showed any emotion whatsoever.
2: Chuck Reed wasn't in the room for the first interview with Elizabeth. But the transcript and the file reveals a wide-ranging conversation that covers her childhood and what she claims was a loving relationship with her parents. They were tremendously supportive, she said. We, all of us, did awful things at various times, so they never laid a guilt trip. They always, always said they supported us completely. They were really quite incredible that way. Yen's name first appears in the police files when Elizabeth tells investigators she was in Washington, D.C. with him on the weekend her parents were murdered. A week after her first interview with police, investigators drove to Charlottesville to interview Elizabeth a second time at the University of Virginia. They appear to have checked her alibi because they ask why the rental car mileage was so high if she and Jens only drove from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C. and back. She told them they got lost on the drive to D.C. Investigators also ask about her shoe size and what kind of tennis shoes she owns. She says she wears a woman's size 8. They end the interview asking Elizabeth how they can get in touch with Jens, and she provides his class schedule. But if investigators made an effort to speak with him that day there's no record in the files that we reviewed in fact as we read the documents we didn't find evidence of investigators trying to contact Jens that whole summer of 1985
1: so they Aww. asked a few questions they just didn't um, follow up well they're they looking just didn't at follow happening. up
2: Elizabeth and Jens spent that summer taking classes in Charlottesville and traveling to Europe together meanwhile Elizabeth's brother Howard was beginning to suspect that his younger sister may have had something to do with the crime. He told investigators he'd seen her compare her own foot to a bloody footprint at the crime scene and recalled her strange comments, including dad's brains being splattered near the fireplace. In September, Jens and Elizabeth were starting the fall semester at UVA, and investigators asked Elizabeth for her fingerprints, footprints, and a blood sample. She provided them, and according to the interview transcript, she agreed to pass a message to Jens that investigators wanted to meet with him. In October, Jens drove to Bedford to meet with investigators for the first and only time. We didn't find the transcript of that conversation in the files, but it's part of his trial transcript, and Chuck Reed had described it to us.
3: First time I met Jens was the first week in October, that Sunday, when he walked in our office.
1: And at that point, were you thinking maybe he was a suspect or like a person of interest?
3: Or- well, he was a person of interest because that's, that's my whole point. Back in, in September, when we went to Charlottesville and got her blood and footprints, that's when we told her, you know, to get Jens to get in touch with us. So we did. I'd never seen him before in my life. At, and actually through that whole 6 months investigation, we you never, never heard much about Jens whatsoever about him warning anybody dead or anything like that. It was all about elizabeth it's kind of like he was back in the background somewhere now of course we knew they had a relationship going
2: jens refused to give fingerprints a blood sample or foot impressions that day but said he'd come back and do it after his midterms were over that never happened of course instead the week after he drove to bedford jens emptied his bank account abandoned his full scholarship to uva and his family and fled the country elizabeth boarded a plane a few days later and the young lovers reunited under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris.
3: When they left the country, I'll admit, I said, well, they're guilty. They're, They're both guilty of something.
2: The question of what Elizabeth and Jens are each guilty of has lingered for the past 35 years. Since his 1990 trial, where he was convicted of double murder, Jens has very publicly maintained his innocence, claiming he knew nothing about the murders beforehand and placing all the blame on Elizabeth. Elizabeth pleaded guilty to being an accessory before the fact in the murders. She has remained steadfast that she goaded Jens into murdering her parents, but that she wasn't present at the crime scene. One of them is lying. Maybe they both are. Christine Kim was Elizabeth's roommate. She's the one who handwrote their alibi and told police Jens and Elizabeth had left town. She handed over a taunting note for investigators that Jens had left behind. I suggest that you continue your investigation as before, Jens wrote. Undoubtedly, you'll find whom you're looking for. As for me, I'm afraid you must remain, as Officer Reed put, only 99% sure of my innocence. Looking through the investigative files, we see that Bedford Deputy Ricky Gardner interviewed Christine Kim the day after Jens and Elizabeth fled. Gardner wrote, I think she knows more than she's telling. Christine came to Lynchburg with Jens and Elizabeth in the days after the murders, and the three of them spent significant time together. In his testimony during Elizabeth's sentencing, Howard Hasem noted it was odd that a sister chose to spend her time with Jens and Christine following the murders rather than her own siblings. It's that alibi, Christine wrote, that we keep coming back to. She was never called to testify, and instead gave a sworn statement saying she couldn't remember if Jens had been present when she wrote it down with Elizabeth. So what exactly does the alibi show, and can it help determine who stayed in Washington, D.C.? The alibi claims Jens and Elizabeth checked into the Marriott Hotel in downtown D.C. on Friday evening. On Saturday, room service was ordered to their hotel room, and five long-distance calls were made from the room. Investigators didn't follow up to see who was in the room at the time. Someone purchased movie tickets to three shows on Saturday, two tickets to an afternoon and early evening film, and a single ticket to the midnight screening of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Again, investigators never established who, if anyone, actually went to the movies. For years, Jens and Elizabeth have been fighting over the alibi and who stayed in Washington, D.C. But is it possible they both went to Bedford County? Howard Hasem testified he believed Elizabeth was in the house at the time of the crime, and investigators have considered that two people committed the murders. Bloody footprints match Elizabeth's shoe size, and Yen's blood type, type O, was found at the scene. Then there's the matter of their fleeing the country and their subsequent confessions. I did it myself. I got off on it, Elizabeth told investigators in England, who chalked her confession up to sarcasm. Jens also confessed multiple times, but blamed someone else for committing what he called the atrocities, which seemed to be a reference to the cutting of the Haysom's throats. In the weeks after the murders, Elizabeth wrote a note to Jens. I thought we did it so that I could be free, she wrote. Trying to figure out if Jens or Elizabeth stayed in D.C. is a fool's errand, if neither of them did. Someone else could have bought the tickets and ordered room service while the couple was in Bedford County. Without a new eyewitness coming forward, we'll never know who stayed in Washington, D.C. that weekend. But our petitions for DNA testing could make it possible to prove who was in the Haysom house the night of the murders. We hoped testing pieces of evidence, including typo bloodstains, the hair found in the sink, cigarette butts, and swabs taken from Derek and Nancy Haysom's bodies, would finally answer some pressing questions. Were there two unidentified men bleeding at the scene, or did all that blood actually come from Derek Hasem, as Wes Nance and others believe? Another possibility. Would new DNA testing reveal Jens was at the scene and prove he's been lying all this time? We'd filed our petitions for DNA testing in late August 2021, and the wait for a response from the court was excruciating. After hearing so quickly that Judge Updike had recused himself, it was another month before we heard from the next judge, assigned to review our petitions. He wanted to know if there was a precedent for journalists to make a request for DNA testing. After doing some research, our attorney Bruce delivered some bad news.
0: The right to petition for uh, release of evidence is not something that the press has. And so that's, that's where we are.
2: Bruce explained that the Boston Globe had tried to conduct DNA testing in another Virginia case about 20 years ago, and the state's Supreme Court had ruled against the paper's request. The court said journalists can request case files, but can't request forensic testing. We asked Bruce if anyone else could make the request.
4: I think Wes would have standing.
2: Jens' team had accused Wes Nance and other Bedford officials of stonewalling on DNA testing. But Wes had been transparent and helpful with us. He'd signed our petitions and explained why he wouldn't make the request for DNA testing himself, but was open to our pursuit. And
1: what made you comfortable with our request?
0: Well, because we were trying to find out these answers together. You know, to have someone to look and see whether my concerns are valid or not. Um, I'm no expert. I, I have to become an expert when I have a DNA case or a case that involves DNA, but I've got to listen to other voices. If the voice in my head is the only one I'm listening to, um, I'm not a very good student. And so I, I have to listen to others. And y'all you, you y'all have brought up um, valid questions, valid reasoning to to try to find answers. And I tried to listen to that. You know, at some point, when it became a, a thought that it was only going to proceed further with, with a request from me, um, my concerns about the validity of the results that we got were greater than the belief that we would get the transparency that people outside Bedford County feel like they might need.
2: We couldn't make the request for DNA testing ourselves. And Wes was firm in his decision. It seemed like we'd reached a dead end. We asked Bruce if there were any more options.
0: The parties would at least arguably have standing.
2: Bruce explained that Jens could make the request for new DNA testing himself, adopting our petitions as his own. Jens' team had called for DNA testing, but they never formally petitioned the court, and they'd never had Wes's cooperation. We wanted to give Jens the good news that we'd established a path for DNA testing— and were willing to share the petitions we developed so he could file them on his own behalf and perhaps finally clear his name. Next on Small Town, Big Crime. That is why I never really had the chance to
4: prove my innocence. He's always said that was what his goal was, was to be pardoned, you know. And the only way he gets pardoned is you gotta identify somebody else.
2: She's washed her hands of the whole thing.
1: Hi, this is Courtney Stewart. If you're enjoying this podcast and appreciate our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon. This type of investigative journalism is labor-intensive and expensive. Rachel and I are working on a new case for season two, and we can't do it without your help. Check out our Patreon page, Small Town, Big Crime. Hi, this is Rachel Ryan. When Courtney and I first started our podcast, we found the perfect place to work and network common house in charlottesville now people in cities across the country and even around the world can benefit from a common house membership with other locations in richmond and chattanooga tennessee thousands of creative types entrepreneurs and other professionals like you are finding a social club that helps them make new connections both personal and professional each location offers gorgeous comfortable spaces for conversation quiet spots for working and tons of planned activities that spark conversation and networking A Common House membership also comes with global benefits. You'll get access to dozens of clubs around the world, from San Francisco to London to Auckland to Singapore. Don't just take our word for it. Come check out Common House yourself. And if you spot us there, say hello.